Welcome to the Bag Drop, untold stories in golf. Professor, top of the morning to you. You, uh, I don't recognize that background behind you there. Well, you must be uh, you must another be road. road game. Another road game. I mean, we are just throwing variables at this show, and uh, and we're conquering best we can. Um, I'm I, I'm blessed though. There's there's a lot of gratitude in my life this morning, uh, Professor. I am at co-founder of New Club, Mark Caldwell's house. Ah. Him and his wife wife Nisha have grace, graciously opened their doors. We had our winter formal last night for the Chicago chapter. Incredible event. Little worse for the wear this morning. Um, but I got up early. The time change almost got me here. I was a little slow to start. But have you, have you ever sat down to do work in front of someone else's computer or someone else's setup? Oh, I just refuse to do it. I just say today is not a work day when that when that's the case. I mean, I always knew Mark was a new, like a like a different level of intelligence than myself. I have always known that. But when I stepped into his setup, I mean, we got three screens, we got multiple cameras, we got uh, this this psychedelic looking keyboard and and all this like ergonomic stuff uh-huh. i mean i i thought I, I walked in i felt like will smith walking into a like an alien spaceship in independence day like i i was lost this morning kind of getting set up but I, but i'm here with you now and i feel at ease I'm, I'm ready to dive in i'm imagining the uh the anti-hero from grandma's boy and his whole rig set up if anybody's <laughs> seen that out there that's that's a deep cut right there that's a deep <laughs> reference if you haven't seen Grandma's Boy, check it out if you're into uh, stupid humor. It's a, it's a solid movie, especially if you're maybe a little under the substance. No, I, 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 uh, I, I'm settled, though. It took, it took me some time. Um, I, he had to come in for some IT support that you, that you very well saw. But uh, we got an awesome guest today, a guy that's been uh, a friend of this program, a, a friend of New Club, a, a historian that has taught me personally so much about this beautiful game. Uh, Stephen Proctor's joined us on the show, so I, I know he's a favorite of yours as well. Oh yeah, I finally got to meet him in person at the uh, this year's um, rendition of the Sweet and Scope member guests, and we got to actually play around together. And you know, it was one of those. I, my buddy and I, we lost. You know, I think we've mentioned this before. I think on the pod, lost. You know, our first time losing our flight, but uh, all that was washed away by the great round with uh, him and Jim Hartzell. Because uh, you just get, don't that's, get that's that many. A dangerous of- duo. That's tough. That's tough to pair up against those guys. I, a lot of a lot of wisdom in that group, and uh, a lot of probably gamesmanship. I'd imagine a little gamesmanship, a lot of ground game too. They know, and it was firm and fast this year. So you knew once they were inside 150, that ball was going to hit the ground early, but then it was going to find its way where it needed to go. Well, that's that's a great duo. You know, I uh, this is our last episode, Professor, before uh, Thanksgiving. And I think it's common and very uh, normal to to feel a sense of gratitude. So I was I was gracious for the bed I had last night. I was gra- grateful for uh, uh, my hosts, um, but it, it actually had me reflecting on on you, sir. And I don't think I've done this enough throughout the uh, the season. But this this show, you joining as co-host at the beginning of 2023, and now we're almost a full year into doing these. I I, I am so grateful for this time spent with you, both as, as a friend, but also getting to, to see you approach these topics in the game that we both love so much, uh, with so much intelligence and so much uh, genuine authenticity. I, it, it has elevated my game on this show. And I, I, last night at the, uh, 
at the formal. I had listeners of this podcast tell me that exact same thing where it's like, you know, it was okay when, when you were doing it. But since the professors got come on, you're better. Like you, uh, it, it, it's so true, Kevin. I just wanted to say a big heartfelt thank you for being the co-host of The Bag Drop this entire season. Well, I very much appreciate that. I mean, I've mentioned before, I feel fortunate to be on here primarily because of the number of people we get to talk to. But then honestly, hearing you say that and just knowing knowing that this gives you energy means a lot to me. Um, you know how much I value New Club and what you're trying to do here, you and Mark are trying to do here in the United States to, to bring the soul of golf back and to what it should be. Um, so anything that gives you more energy to keep doing that and keeping on that march, cause it's not an easy one. You know, almost everything's pushing against you that I think that's what that means the most to me that I, wow. that it does that for you. So. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. Let's not get too emotional to start the, the show. Uh, uh, you know, the other thing is accountability just in, in general, I think, um, you know, whether you're working out with somebody or going to the golf course with a friend there's an accountability. And, and when you have a, a rough morning, it's like, no, I got to be on my game because the professor's going to be on his game. And we're getting, you know, that's, there's, there's that as well. And oh. I, I think that's a fun element of this program. I hear you on that one. Um, I guess it's a double-edged sword with you and Stephen both on here today. They got me up out of bed. We had, uh, had a few Sweetens Cove brethren um, in town. So I was, I had a few more pops than, than normal recently too. So today was a, as, as Claire said when she was cooking breakfast, are you getting out of bed at all this morning? So, <laughs> well, let's get out of bed and get it to it. Uh, any any education for the the audience this morning? I, I do. I've still been, you know, reading about universities and funding agencies. Um, again, um, I don't know where this pod will fall in our sequencing, but been reading uh, after the Ivory Tower Falls by Will Bunch, um, and it's just had me deep diving also different funding agencies that the government uses for educational research and that. Um, probably a lot of people aren't familiar with it. So two of the primary ones are NIH, the National Institute of Health, and the National Science Foundation are two of the primary government funding agencies for educational research, um, university research, not educational research necessarily for edu you know, researching education, but just giving funding dollars to university professors to do their research. Um, they're the two bi um, biggest ones. You know, I think operating budget-wise, I think NSF's about $10 billion. Um, NIH is about 50 to $60 billion. Typically, NIH does more medical stuff, so that's why their funding is, is much bigger than National Science Foundation. But I think, you know, what does that mean to probably the, the typical person listening to this be like, well, that's, you know, it's this big number, but what does that mean in terms of me? A good way to think about it is just one grant. So, like, my typical, in my field, a typical good size grants can be about a million dollars. That's a good grant, really, for most fields outside of the medical and engineering ones that need a lot for equipment. Um, but say a million dollars. Well, if you think about dividing that up across the taxpayer population, each taxpayer, so if I get a grant for a million dollars, each taxpayer is essentially giving me six one thousandth, one thousandth of a cent is what that comes down to um, per taxpayer. So a very, very small amount per taxpayer goes into a grant. Um, but also, all I have to say is, especially me as a researcher, that gets to, you know, live a wonderful lifestyle in terms of my career and, you know, get up and ask whatever question I want and pursue it. Like, we're very thankful for every taxpayer that, you know, to pays their taxes and, gener and um, generates that tax revenue because we wouldn't be able to do what we do without it. Um, you know, I always say when we get a grant, we're beholden to the taxpayer. Like, we need to do the job well because they're giving up money out of their pocket so we can try to help better society, right? And whether that's NASA, um, 
any healthcare agency, any medical institute, or any university that's you know trying to do cutting edge research to better either their local community, the state, or the nation. Um, it's all because of taxpayers that we get to do what we do and try to improve groups. So, anyways, every grin I get. Thank you for uh, both you and Stephen for your six one thousandth of a cent. Um, <laughs> Happy to contribute. <laughs> and every every other listener too. You know, I'll, I'll buy you a drop of beer when we're we're out Wait. to just give you that give you that uh, hold a that second. money back. Just just I just want to pause for a second because we just had elections. You know, I was in, in my Ohio. I, I I'm a registered voter now in the great state of Ohio. And I had a, a multitude of, of tax levies I had to, to vote upon. I, I didn't see anything about a grant program to, to Professor Moore uh, at University of Georgia. Like, do, do, is there something I need to sign off on for these, for my oh, we, six we, one thousandths of a cent? We get to bake this into the federal budget, right? So, yeah, <laughs> if you want to change that, uh, you know, maybe there's a lobbyist for not giving Professor Moore money. You can go find him and uh, see if he can... I you, you know I, I know you work hard and I know you're helping a whole lot of, of people but uh, it sounds like a lot of pork and gristle professor I might have to chop a little bit of my percent down if that's all right with you <laughs> <laughs> I mean how do you think I afford this podcast mic right here <laughs> that's right that's right no that's it's fascinating your world is uh, and and that the depth at which you have to dive in to understand the uh, the the factors that contribute to what you do I think is really uh, noble, Kevin. You've always kind of put that that foot forward of not just doing the job, but understanding well, what what designed the job, what uh, inputs created this environment of academia and institution. I actually uh, take a lot of what you share with me on that, and I apply it to the world of golf. Um, I've shared that with, with you privately plenty of times, but you know the institutionalized reality of of private golf, especially in the United States. Um, I've, I've really challenged myself to learn the history on it, to understand uh, uh, how it differs between countries, between regions, uh, histories of specific golf clubs, and how that impacts an area and a community. And, um, and, and I apply that to what we're doing at New Club. A lot of that has come from, from your, uh, your astute research and like attention to those details. Um, so thank you. Thanks for, for sharing it. Shall we? Do you think we, it's time? We've made him wait long enough. He's got a lot of intelligent things to say himself. Should we get Mr. Proctor on the show? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. You know, we got to talk about balls and divots and, and all that, right? Because ah, nothing better to get going on in the morning. Yes, sir. Well, let's get to it. Stephen Proctor, welcome to The Backdrop. It's great to be back, and it's uh, especially nice to be here with the professor. The last time I was here, he was not yet on the show and uh, had the great joy of playing around a golf at Sweetens Cove with the professor earlier this year, and a uh, proper golfer, wonderful man to play with, so great to be on the show with the two of you. It is great to have you back. Yes, the show has, I think this will be even a top-notch experience for you, Stephen. After I, our, our last conversation was around, if I'm not mistaken, uh, "Monarch of the Green," your your last book on young Tom Morris, uh, the, probably my favorite uh, of of your work because I'm so that is a topic that I was very willing to dive deep on. Young Tom, a member of the New Golf Club of St. Andrews, the inspiration for New Club, loved that conversation. Today we have a, a very different topic. Uh, that I've been excited to to talk to. I know the professor's been asking to talk about this topic for a long time, but the idea of fairness in the game of golf. 
um, a topic I know you're very well well versed, sir. Yes, you know that's the uh, to my mind this whole thing is uh, a growing cancer on the game of golf, uh, and it's just to me in the modern age it's one of the more insidious developments in the game, and I think there's uh, multiple ways in which it's neutering uh, the nature of the game. Um, and, you know, I find it very distressing. If I see one more Twitter, and I'm going to call it Twitter, I, I refuse to, to call it by some stupid name that marks the spot. Um, <laughs> so if I see one more person on Twitter post something about, should I get relief from a divot, I'll probably just have an aneurysm in my sleep like young Tommy and pass away because it just, to me, it just represents a complete lack of understanding of the game itself. Um, and so, you know, no, I'm anxious to speak about this topic. And, uh, you know, in the course of, of doing the second book that I wrote, The Long Golden Afternoon, you, you see the minute the game leaves Scotland in the 1860s, how it begins to change culturally. And, you know, obviously some great things happen from that, uh, but also great and terrible often side by side in this world and some terrible things uh, got dragged in along with it, in particular, this notion that there should be fairness in the game of golf. So where do we start this topic? I mean, I I, I think, I, I know you're going to be exceptionally well-researched on this. So I, my, my gut is telling me to go back to the origins of the idea of fairness. Um, where did this idea start where people said that, that the game should, should have uh, a, a set of rules, a set of fair, uh, equitable things to, to, to play by, and, or are those different? Well, I would say this about it is that, you know, during the years when the game was strictly a Scottish game, and those years would be from about 1400 on through about 1860 when the Open Championship begins. The Open Championship, in the beginning of the Open Championship, is the time when golf first starts to get attention outside of Scotland, primarily because the Open drew the attention of gamblers in London who thought it was a good proposition. And, uh, you know, betting has always been the lifeblood of golf. You know, gambling has been the central focus of golf since the beginning. The whole reason that, you know, great matches and tournaments were set up to begin with was to create opportunities for gambling at the autumn meeting of the club. Uh, so there would be um, a great match being staged as part of the autumn meeting or a tournament being staged as part of the autumn meeting. And the principal thing was entertainment for the guests at the autumn meeting. And in the case of rich gentlemen who primarily did not work, uh, you know, you got to keep in mind at the very beginning, a lot of golf were landed gentry who didn't have jobs and they spent their life on sporting pursuits of one kind or another or theater, opera, whatever it was. Um, and so gambling was a, was a big part of their entertainment in life and the opportunity to bet on those things. So once the game moved, started moving into England in the 1860s, one fundamental change occurs, and that is where the notion of fairness comes in. And that is that for whatever reason, the English were more captivated by stroke play than match play. And that is the point at which fairness begins to enter into the conversation. because people, the English were so obsessed with their score 
And Horace Hutchinson writes about this in a book called The Oval Series of Games, you know, a whole bunch of books on different games, one of which is on golf. Hutchinson writes most of it. And he writes an essay that talks about how the English adopted the game, but not in all of its glorious traditions. And he points out that, yes, English people would keep their score in a match. So if they're playing a match against you and you concede their putt, they won't let you touch it. They want to hold it out because they want to find out what their actual score was going to be. And they wrote their score down in a match, which you can imagine how Scots reacted to that uh, poorly would be would be the word. Uh, and uh, so once your focus becomes a low score and uh, then you start to focus in on everything that prevents you from obtaining a low score. So the first truly English club gets created in 1864 at Royal North Devon. By 1866, English golfers, this is two years later, Hoylake has not even been created yet. That doesn't get created till 1869. But by 1866, uh, there is a huge debate about going on in the pages of the Field magazine that goes on for two years, an exchange of letters to editors between prominent golfers in Scotland and England, uh, in which the English golfers are pressing for a universal set of rules to govern the game and a governing body because the game had just evolved rather loosely. Everybody played by the so-called St. Andrew's rules, which were honestly just the rules that had been created in 1744 by the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers as a condition of getting the Silver Club to compete for. The city required them to have rules if they were going to give them a club to compete for. And those rules became the St. Andrew's rules they added a couple things that had to do specifically with the nature of the links at St. Andrews. And then those rules just became the rules most people played by. Difficulty was that that only applied to links courses. So when you started getting courses built on Heathland and on Parkland and on places like that, situations developed that weren't really covered by the rules. And so clubs were just making their own rules. So it was getting a little bit out of control. And the English, I think wisely, felt that there needed to be a universal governing body. But one of their first issues. And this is the first notion where fairness creeps in is they hated the stymie. So mm -hmm. the stymie rule applied in match play. And uh, basically, it, there was never actually a written stymie rule per se. But one of the original 13 rules, rules was to play the ball as it lies. You were only allowed to touch your ball on two occasions. And of course, you, the royal person, would never do that. It would be your caddy who did it. That was to put it on a tee and to pick it up out of the hole. Every other time, your ball had to stay where it was, and that included the putting green. So uh, on the putting green, you know, if there was a ball between your ball and the hole, that was just part of the game, and you either went over it or you went around it or you lost the hole as a consequence of being stymied. And the English from the very outset thought that was unjust and that the ball should be marked and lifted. And so there was a campaign that began in, well, it actually even the Scots, honestly, had agonized some over the nature of the stymie. And for one year, in 1833, the Royal and Ancient eliminated it from the rules from 1833 to 1834. But then it was put back in because there was still, at that time, a majority of people in Scotland who felt like, hey, the game is the game. It's like life. Not everything that happens to you in life is fair. Many of the things that happen to your life are grossly unfair. You work your tail off and you don't get the promotion. You know, th that, that is the nature of life. And, and uh, so the campaign against the stymie was where fair, the idea of fairness first enters into the game. And it goes on uh, 
for years. And finally, the stymie is eliminated from golf in 1952. So this is how long it goes on, almost a century of debate over the question of the stymie. And it goes to this fundamental question of, of fairness, because, you know, obviously it's, in, you know, it's inherently unfair to lose a match because somebody's putt landed right on the lip of the cup in between your ball and the hole. And even, you know, you almost can't even loft that stymie. You're just done. And uh, so people strongly reacted negatively to that. So that was point one of entry. It, Steven, I want to circle back on the, the match play, stroke play um, breakdown. What, do you have knowledge on what was it about the English that just made them gravitate towards stroke play? Was there something cultural that was different than the Scots that led them to be so obsessed with it? You know, it's, that's a question I've thought about a ton, Kevin, and I don't really have, there's not a way that you can find the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, the English were the nation that built the empire, you know, so in a certain way, uh, a person, you know, I think the English just had more personal drive and were a little bit more individualistic in certain ways than Scots. And uh, I know this, to Every single English professionals, you know, the first English professional to win a, a tournament was John Henry Taylor in 1894. And every English professional came to conclude that stroke play was a better test of a champion than match play, which was something that the Scots didn't agree with then. And I'm pretty sure most Scots don't agree with now. Uh, but the, so I think it was really simply that it, the English professional really developed a strong preference for stroke play. And just in the way people do now, the, the, uh, what becomes popular is what the leading professionals think is best. You know, uh, and you can just look at it in the slavish way that people pay $600 for a driver that does not do one thing to their game, not one thing, and uh, because professionals play it. And people, all kinds of people hit a golf ball that is ill-suited to their swing and their swing speed and their game because it's a pro V1X that is played by professionals. And, uh, you know, they don't have a swing speed that benefits from the use of a pro V1X. They're probably taking distance from themselves by playing it. But people have always been that way, slavishly interested in what the professional golfer thinks. And the English professionals, Varden in particular, and Varden became so monstrously big, uh, I think it's difficult for us now to have a perspective on how massively popular Varden was in the year 1888, 1898, 1899, 1900, um, and his influence became massive. And he was very, very strongly of the opinion, as was John Henry Taylor and every other, you know, Ted Ray, all the other great English professionals, uh, that stroke play was the true test of a champion. And that's just a big turning point in the history of the game in terms of this question of fairness, because you can see how, uh, if you're interested in a low score, um, the fact that you have to hit over a mound to a green that you cannot see uh, can become something that you then have thoughts about. Uh, and, you know, that's the next area beyond the rules where it creeps in. You know, in addition to the stymie, there was a constant movement to try to make the rules um, easier in situations where you got into trouble. Um, You know, for instance, casual water. 
that's another situation. You know, during almost all of the history of golf up until 1900, and I forget exactly when casual water got brought in, but it was after 1900, um, if there was water on the golf course, you could take your ball out of it, but it involved a penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you could play your ball from it. If you look on the back of the Long Golden Afternoon, there's a painting on there that I commissioned from a British artist of Freddie Tate playing in the 1899 Open Championship, I mean, at Amateur Championship final against John Ball at the Alps Hole at Presswick. And uh, it had rained all week long during the tournament and up leading up to the tournament. So the Alps bunker was about ankle deep in water everywhere, except the very front part of the bunker where it slopes up toward the green. Freddie Tate's ball landed in the bunker. He's, this is the 35th hole of the championship match. He's one down, crosses the Alps to see where his ball is floating in the middle of the water. You know, at that point, he had no relief from that. He could wade into the water and hit the ball onto the green, or he could take it out and surrender the match. Those were his choices. And, you know, so over the years, there's been a constant softening of the rules to make the game more fair. You know, I might point out that Freddie got the ball out of the water and onto the green and have the hole and was able to extend the match to the 19th. Uh, so heroic things happened. And people, um, the attitude that Scott's had toward those challenges was so different than today. You know, it was like that was part of the brilliance of the game from their perspective to, you know, and to Freddie hitting that ball out of the water and saving his, himself on that 17th hole there with a have against John Ball, uh, and then winning the 18th to send it into extra holes. That was the great excitement and joy of the game to have overcome that unbelievable challenge presented by the fact that the bunker was full of water. And where is the glory, I ask you, in taking your ball out of the water, chipping it in a commonplace way up onto the hole and having the hole that way as opposed to wading in the road into the water like Horatio into the Tigris and, and, and hitting it out like a champion. So, you know, that, that is, you know, the softening of the rules over time has been one of the main ways. And of course, we now see that evolve into this modern question of should I get relief from a divot? It's the same exact process that's been evolving for a century of chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at the difficulties of the game and what it does is it makes the game more and more insipid as each year passes and the courses themselves. But the attack on architecture is the second you know, avenue of fairness that we can talk about because that was the very next thing that came into it after the rules. Yeah, we're, I, I want to dive into the architecture thing, but I want to, I guess this is a comment. I want to get your your take on it, your, your feedback on it. Like, this seems like there's a walking contradiction in that match play versus stroke play and the gravitation towards stroke play plus fairness in the sense of like, it's simultaneously individualistic and in the need to compare with each other, like to other people, right? And enable some sort of comparison and like always situating myself, am I better or worse than these other people? Like on the grand scheme of things, not just the person I'm on the grounds with that day. Yet, at the same time, fairness is about, like, I don't want to feel any tension or friction or feel slighted in that, right? So, like, it's almost like there's a contradiction there. It's like, oh, I want to compare myself, but wait, don't make me 
get behind the eight ball. Like, don't, you know, don't, don't make me have to overcome something to compare myself. Like, let me do it easily. Like, it just seems, I don't know. It's so, I to do me, it's think just that a there's an inherent conflict in that too, Kevin. And I think it shows a weakness of, of nature, which is rather than succeed in the way that the great Freddie Tate does by overcoming what would seem to be an insurmountable obstacle, how much more joy do you think Freddie felt? having that hole from that bunker full of water than he would have in almost any other way. And that was a central part of the joy that Scott's gained from the game. And if you read architecture reviews from the early 1890s, uh, I would say that everything really starts to get seriously bad at the turn of the century. You know, we were still, clean, you know, up until 1899, Harry Varden plays a great match against Willie Park Jr., uh, having to do with a close finish in the, in the Open Championship the previous year at Presswick. And Varden just absolutely annihilates Park. And, it, you know, that was probably one of the two things that was the end of that great match play era. And uh, I, so I say sort of 1900 on, it really starts to pick up speed because by 1900, stroke play is very much the dominant form of golf now. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of efforts to cling to some form of match play as part of the test. You know, when the PGA of America, PGA of Britain gets formed in 1901 and 1902, uh, the, the tournament that they create, the PGA Championship, which was known then as the News of the World because it was sponsored by that newspaper, the, the owner of the newspaper, George Riddle, wanted it to be a match play tournament you know, as an attempt to preserve match play and the beauty of match play. And so both the PGA championships here and in, in, and in Britain uh, started as match play championships, and that was part of an effort to hold on to it. But there was no holding back the tide then. You know, a stroke play had taken over, and, uh, and you know, some of that is just practical too. The more people played, the more it became impractical to have match play tournaments. And a lot of things were tried to keep match play alive where – there would be tournaments that are along the lines of the amateur format where you had uh, stroke play for three days and then 16 people had matches for the last two days to settle it. So there, you know, there were a lot of efforts to keep it going, but in the end, um, you know, obviously the English overwhelmed the Scots on the field and in numbers. And uh, very soon after the war were overwhelmed themselves by Americans uh, and you know the acceleration of the of, of of the whole idea of fairness is massively increased once the game spreads into America in the 1890s, because the nature of the American personality is extremely individualistic, even compared to the English. And uh, you know Americans were it would be you know Americans were just obsessed with their score, uh, and Americans invented practice and everything like that to try to improve their score. There was no such thing as practice in Britain. No, no golf course in Britain had a, had driving range. If you were practicing, you might go out to a, a quiet corner of the course with an offending club and try to sort it out. But there was no such thing as practice in the way that we understand it now. And well, I, <clears throat> I think we should make the jump to to, to U.S. before we do that. And I, I guess I'll plant this seed with you, the pr professor, because I think of the three of us here, uh, someone. I, I, we all, all of us share the golf sensibility that golf should be unfair, <laughs> that it is 
uh, a game played in nature and and it should run its course. And I, I think we're, we're all in that mindset. But uh, you, Professor, have built a business around practice plans and analytics and removing as many obstacles as possible. So I know that you have some of the, the you're well attuned to the contrary to that, where people that do really want to control as many variables as possible so that they can be better stroke play golfers, right? So I wanted, I want at some point today to get a counterpoint out of you with this. But before we do that, I, it's, it's funny, Stephen, as I was leaving for Chicago and I knew we were going to be talking uh, here on Friday morning, I, I, I threw in my bag what I thought was uh, John Lowe concerning golf because I know he was one of the original uh, staunch advocates for uh, protecting the game and match play in, in the way that we describe it. Um, I didn't pick that up. What I did instead is I, I grabbed Robert Hunter, The Links, which are about yeah. similar size books. <laughs> so so uh, there, but, but I think Mary, maybe serendipity was involved because I have a quote here uh, to just kind of reinforce how I feel about it um, from Robert Hunter in, in his book, The Links. Uh, the keenest delight in golf is given to those who, finding themselves in trouble, refused to be depressed, and with some recovery, snatch from their opponents what seemed for them certain victory. So for me, that speaks to uh, uh, the ideal of, hey, that, that, that is w- one reason I play the game of golf. Uh, match play in particular, having those mo- moments, those multiple moments in a match where some call it the Mongolian reversal, where you look like you have no chance, whether you're in a divot, you're in the water, or you're up against a fence, and you somehow come back from that moment. You gave yourself that opportunity to, uh, to overcome adversity and win a match. Those are what I live for. And it's it's one big reason we are predominantly a match play club at, at New Club. And that quote just brilliantly sums up the Scottish attitude toward golf at when the game began. And like I say, most of the reviews from the 1880s and 90s of golf courses focus on the, what what type of hazards did they offer? What challenge did they present for you to overcome? And it wasn't viewed as a negative. It was viewed as a positive. The more wild and crazy the hazards the golf course presented, the more fun it was to play from the point of view of the Scots, uh, where I would say that's the exact opposite of the point of view of a modern professional player uh, who wants everything to be 100% predictable. Uh, And so, you know, that that quote is a beautiful quote and just, you know, sums it up uh, exactly as well as as well as John Lowe could have done for sure. Let's go. You you mentioned uh, architecture. I think we want to de- devote some time to that uh, because w- when does this spread? So the the ideal that that golf needs to be fairness. I I have to imagine you, you brought up governing bodies early on and and all the way back to those uh, 1744 rules by the Honorable Company. But uh, once it starts to really spread in the U.S., this disease, as you put it, of, of the game needs to be fair. Um, what really accelerated it in, in, in the U.S.? What was the moment that it really everybody kind of, because that is still the predominant thought today. Yeah. Well, I would say that, you know, let's go back to the architecture thing, because that's, I think of that as pretty, pretty critical to the evolution. So 
you know, around the early part of the 1900s, 1910, 1920, 1930, you have this new age of golf, what we now think of as the golden age of golf architecture arising. And, um, you know, I would say that in that group of people, one of the leading lights was Tom Simpson. Would you guys agree with that, that he was sort of maybe the intellectual leader of that movement or certainly one of them? And he writes a series of essays for another one of these Lonsdale Libraries book on golf. And they had a, you know, a series of books on different games because it was games which became so important in the history of British culture. But in any case, he's writing about golf courses and he's talking about what he views to be the dark age of golf architecture, which is the ages that led up to him and to other men uh, like him uh, creating more strategic golf courses, which all of that's true. Uh, but he's talking about how not much had been done to these courses. And he says, except the elimination of certain of the more uh, heroic holes, such as the maiden at Sandwich. Holes of this nature, of this character, may be in a sense attractive, and many of them, such as the Alps and the Himalayas at Presswick, are too adventurous and resemble too closely dips in the lucky bag to justify their presence on our classic courses. So this is 1931 when he's writing this essay, and he's basically taking the point of view that the greatest golf hole in the world, the Alps at Prestwick, uh, is a fundamentally unfair hole and ought not to be on a truly classic golf course. Two of the best holes at Prestwick, the Himalayas and the Alps. So and good. of course, the, the <laughs> so maiden at Sandwich, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the original Royal St. George's, but when the Royal St. George's were built, the maiden was a par three that played over top of a massive dune that was mm-hmm. mostly sand scarred in front. Parts of it had to be propped up with uh, black timbers uh, to to keep the sand from falling in, caving in. And you had to play over this massive hill. So if you couldn't carry over the hill, uh, and you know, lots of people in that age, and I do too, I doubt if I could have carried the maiden, have low ball flight that would make that really challenging. Even the Himalayas is pretty challenging for me. Um, so, you know, you could get into absolutely desperate trouble if you landed in the sandy part of the maiden. God knows what, what sort of score you might make. So uh, by, the 19, by 1900, they had moved the tee box uh, 90 degrees or so uh, counterclockwise so that you played with the mound along the left side of the hole and not over it. And, uh, you know, Darwin wrote about that and had just to, to great regret. I'm just going to read a little bit about what Darwin had to say about the maiden. He said, uh, there stands the maiden, steep, sandy, and terrible, with her face scarred and seamed with black timbers. But alas, we no longer have to drive over her crown. We hardly do more than skirt the hem of her garment. You know, and, uh, and then he adds that uh, the present maiden is but a shadow of its old self. And the splendor of it was, in great measure, departed. And, uh, you know, so, you know, Darwin f- felt regret about that change. But the change was uh, just basically insisted upon by English golfers who found that hole to be fundamentally unfair. And uh, then that, you know, that's the beginning of this creep into architecture of taking away um, things that, you know, that, that are viewed as fundamentally unfair, the blind shot being a big one. And, uh, you know, I feel like that is when the cancer really is getting, uh, spreading to other organs, if you ask me. 
because what you've had, I feel like what we've had since then is a steady progression from that time to this time toward less and less interesting golf courses, particularly as it pertains to courses that are competed over by uh, professionals. Mm-hmm. That, you know, um, you know, a modern day course on the PGA Tour is really just a pretty boring golf course. Uh, with And, you know, the other thing is the treatment of hazards. You know, we now go into a, quote, hazard, and if it's not immaculately raked, uh, then something is really wrong with the grounds crew. You know, I don't even know when the bunker rake started being used, probably around 1910, 15 or something. There was no bunker rake. There was no notion uh, that you should even – it was expected that you might require several shots to get out of a particularly bad bunker, so much so that Horace Hutchinson, writing in 1886 uh, in his book Hints on Golf, said, uh, there is no rule uh, if, if, if your opponent is badly bunkered. There is no rule against your standing above him and counting his strokes aloud with increasing <laughs> gusto as their number mounts up. But it is a wise precaution to arm yourself with a niblick before doing so, so as to meet him on equal terms. You know, so people understood that if you got in a bunker, that would be a potentially loss of whole situation. It wasn't going to be that you were then able to chip it to within one foot and tap in with about 60%, 70% regularity if you're a decent golfer. Uh, and, you know, these, are, these evolutions are the thing that have fundamentally changed the game and every little part of it, being in a bunker, carrying over a blind hill, all these things have been gradually swept away from the game and uh, have made it easier and, to my mind, less interesting and less challenging. The one good thing COVID did is nobody wanted to have a bunker rake. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you could get back to something like original golf where the bunker was a disaster when you got in it. But of course, I don't know of a single club that didn't allow you to prop the ball up out of a footprint or something like that under those circumstances, which anyway, I can't even make myself comment on that. But it's just, uh, you know, there's been an erosion of, of the game steadily and consistently since 1900 to take away anything that could cause you not to have the lowest score possible. It seems so much of that is tied to stroke play in the sense of like, okay, why, why would that be the case? Why do these, do we want perfect bunkers or whatever? And match play, right? Like if I get stuck in a bunker and it takes me seven to get out, you know, I'm playing Matt in a heated match for, for dinner that night. It's like, okay, I lost that hole. I can move on and I can recover. But yes. stroke play, like, okay, the, the, like that could happen on the second hole and all of a sudden the match might as well be over in stroke play. And so it's like, it's, so I get you can see that, how it evolves. Like all, you can yeah. understand how it evolves. Is that if you yeah. get into a bunker on the second hole of a of a stroke play tournament and it takes you six to get out, that's probably the end of your tournament, you know, or at least you know your chances of doing anything in the tournament are greatly compromised. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, it's not hard to understand how it evolves. Uh, I just find it depressing but, that it has. But evolved. yeah, and as, then as like it, as it pertains to the fairness debate, though, Professor, where my head goes is uh, on a stroke play competition, you're, you're trying to control something that in the end of the day, it's impossible. Let's take the Open Championship, for example. Over four days to expect that every player is going to be playing in the same weather conditions, impossible. Mm-hmm. So does raking that bunker to a perfect, pristine amount or allowing people to put drop a ball when they're in a, a, a divot, does it make a damn difference? 
because you can't it, you're, you're trying to uncontrol mm-hmm. the thing that is uncontrollable which is nature nature of the game and that's why i i think match play is so much more pure in the sense that that's going to be the closest that two players are to the same conditions, the same moment, the same exertion at the same point in a round. You know, the, the stroke play to me, um, it, it, it doesn't, over the course of four days, yeah, maybe of the person who's swinging the best or putting the best, it will identify that. But the person that has the best series of moments in the moment it, it, it much, much more clearly identifies that because, uh, it's, it's kind of, I'll use another sport as analogy. It's, uh, Michael Jordan's got the ball and he's in that moment. Does he make it or doesn't he? And that's what I find with, with, uh, the competition of match play in this fairness debate is I think it is truly fair that these two players are playing at the exact same moment in the exact same circumstances and they're staring each other down. And, and that is going to decide, uh, the champion versus, he hold a putt yeah. on the 16th, 17th, 18th when I was already in the clubhouse, you know, and I, I, that's just. And I played yeah. in a 30 mile an hour wind and he played in no wind, you know. Precisely, and, precisely. Yeah, so, yeah. And also, on the like, to go back to my, to counter my counterpoint on the stroke play, like, hey, guess what? If you're out of the tournament in the second hole of the tournament, that's just how life works sometimes, right? Like, yes. hey, I forgot to turn in my resume by the deadline. I didn't get an interview or I bombed the first interview. I didn't get a follow-up interview. Like, that, like one of the things that drives me nuts. I mean, I saw a post recently on Twitter. I'm a kid person nameless because I know the son. Son's an amazing player. He's going to do great professionally, I bet. But you know, son, he was in the divot a couple of times in qual- in Q school and made this statement about like these are people's careers that are being at risk. It's like no, they no no. That's so outlandish. Like if it doesn't get through Q school, that kid's going to do great in life anyways, right? Like yeah. you're you're setting up this false image of what success is like oh getting here is the only thing that's successful no that's not true at all that's not like act like this is so important that if you don't get through q school life is over as you know it guess what maybe he's gonna be a major winner maybe he's gonna go cure cancer like come on like that's not that's not act well like the other thing is life Kevin, and death if, thing. if you can't get out of a divot maybe you shouldn't get out of q school either you know yeah. being able to hit from a divot is a principal skill in golf and uh so just in the same way that being able to hit from a bunker or from some sort of a hazard or to flop a shot over an intervening bunker, those are all skills that are required to play successful golf. And, you know, the other thing that has happened is all of these rule changes and architecture changes have gradually diminished the skill that's required. You know, mm-hmm. to be able to loft a stymie was a brilliant skill. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the greatest flex maybe that I've ever seen is Byron Nelson playing against Sam Snead in a final championship in his stymied. So this is prior to 1952. And uh, he lost the ball over the stymie, drops it right in the hole, and then just swats Snead's ball out of the way like, get uh-huh. out of here. You know, and those kinds of skills have gradually been taken away. Uh, and, uh, you know, so eventually might we might, I, I do feel like, I hope not, but I see that there's, I think there is a possibility of, uh, of the divot rule being changed, uh, you know, and softened. And I, I would think of that as the final nail in the coffin. Uh, but I think of that as possibly happening, but I just don't understand why someone, you know, there's another story that I love, which is, uh, comparing Tom Watson and Greg Norman, Mm -hmm. a guy who had caddied for both of them and Greg Norman walks up to see his ball at a divot and says, God 
damn it, this is so freaking unfair, whatever like that. And Tom Watson walks up the same ball in the same dip and says, watch this. And uh, therein lies the difference in attitude uh, that, to me, between a proper golfer, uh, Tom Watson, and, and, and the other golfers who always want a break from every little challenge that presents itself to them. Um, you know, I just, uh, I think that goes to the heart of the game and, uh, people who embrace the challenge, I think of as golfers with the capital G and other people I think of as people who play golf. Hmm. That's nicely said. Yeah. I had that, that Watson Norman, uh, story down on my list too, Stephen, because I think that might be the, that's the mic drop for me is just think about. Uh, how that applies towards life. Those that see it as an opportunity versus those that see it as an unfair challenge. I mean, that is, um, that cuts deep, that story. So I, 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 I hope everyone considering that rule change and, and we as a club, so, you know, I'm an officer uh, of new club and I have to weigh in with our club captains to, uh, to make decisions. Uh, we got phenomenal people that are, are, are part of our captain council or vice captains, um, one in, in Georgia particularly, Kevin, he at the club championship was in a divot and said, enough's enough. We got to change this. We're going to, let's have a local rule in 2024. And he's looking me dead in the eye. I think he listens to the show. He should know how I feel about this. <laughs> I just look, I said, not an effing chance. Hit your shot. What are you talking about? And, and, it, and it back to that Watson story. I mean, that, that is what sums up my feelings on it. I mean, you let's let's say, okay, let's let's take the let's take this rationally too. Let's say, okay, we want to make a rule change. What is the rule change? Because how do you delineate what's a divot and what's not? Right? Like comes down that one, look at the rules of golf. Nothing is delineated with fairway and rough in the rules of golf, right? The only teeing grounds and greens are the only things that are set aside in golf. Every other piece of the the turf is the same by the rules of golf. Sure, we get like lift, clean, and place rules, but those are again local rules that aren't dictated in the rules of golf. Lift, clean, so and place should not to, exist ever. Yeah, we're literally going to have to play ball in hand everywhere. Is the only way you would make this rule practically work in practice, right? Where you wouldn't have it's, people debating and fighting. Oh, that's a divot. That's not. You have to go ball in hand throughout. And then we're not playing golf anymore. Like I'm done. I'm, I not, I'm, not, feel I'm not playing that, that game if we're ball in hand everywhere. I'll quit. Like I mean, I won't, pl- I won't play it. I think most professionals. Uh, would love it if they had ball in hand every time because their oh, view of the game is that it's a game about striking, and it, their view is that simple: is I should be if I put a good strike on the ball, and in it goes conditions. where I aimed it, then it should I should wind up in a perfect spot, able to make a perfect shot each and every time I do it, and that is neither life nor golf, you know. Uh, so I feel like, you know, I just feel like it's not. Uh, I just, I also feel like the whole rules of like, there's a reason that the decisions of, on the rules of golf take are like the size of the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, uh, <laughs> because it's very difficult to delineate specific circumstances in a natural environment like a golf course. And uh, so it would be an enormously complicated to make a rule as to what constituted a divot to start with, which is none of the divot people think of it that way. Does this think, I hit a really good shot right down the middle of this fairway, and now I don't have my ball sitting up pristine waiting to be struck by me to the perfect spot on the green. Uh, and um, f- 
for them that that represents something that's unjust. And I, I just don't know what they do in real life when uh, something happens to them uh, that is grossly unfair, which, which, which does all the time. And uh, so, you know, I don't know. Uh, to me, I feel like, you know, the divot is the last straw. And I hopefully, you know, golf will hold the line on that. But I've lost confidence somewhat in, uh, in the governing bodies of, uh, in terms of their intestinal fortitude in a, in a litigious age. You know, I'll be interested to see if they actually do anything much with the ball rollback or the equipment rollback. The game certainly needs it uh, in, in so many different ways. But, you know, I mean, I believe in the governing bodies and I think that we need those to have the game that we have. Uh, but I do feel like ever since the ping lawsuit, uh, th- which they didn't win on the grooves, uh, it's been tough sledding to get them to legislate the game in the way that it desperately needs to be legislated, particularly, you know, as it goes to the length that the ball flies and how easy it is to hit clubs now. Uh, you know, I, I, I rolled the ball back for myself uh, a year or so ago by uh, switching to playing only hickory clubs. So I play only clubs handmade by Scotsman uh, in the 1900s. And, uh, you know, you then see really, really vividly how technology has so altered the nature of the game and diminished the skill required to play the game well. You know, I've never been a good player, but um, it's just so much harder to hit the ball purely with a hickory club. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, a, a mishit results in a terrible shot, not a shot that went almost as far and almost as straight as if you hadn't mishit it, which is which is what happens when you're playing with modern golf clubs, even as a moderate player. Uh, so, you know, I just feel like, I find it more fun to play with hickories because it requires you to be more to be craftier, to make more shots, to get your swing actually under control, and to be able to swing it at the proper tempo for your ability and hit the ball squarely on the face of it and get decent shots. And I feel like I get a lot greater reward when I hit a shot that is a, a brilliant shot because you have the knowledge that that's all you. That had nothing to do with the fact that you're hitting a 460cc driver or whatever it is, uh, you hit that little brassy that's barely bigger than the golf ball itself and you knock it 170 yards to two feet from the flag and you think, wow, I'm John Ball right now. I just hit that ball right up next to the flag. So that's a brilliant thing. Can I take us back to the architecture? Uh, yes. For a second because um, – I, I, I'm thinking about the different uh, generations of golf course architects and how some uh, have probably been forced into building, quote unquote, fair golf courses more than, than others. Um, I'm going to use uh, – very, it's very rare that a Tom Fazio golf course that you play today has a blind shot. Uh, it's very rare that I'll use our friend Rob Collins, who's been on this show plenty of times. It's very rare that you play one of his golf courses that doesn't have multitude of blind shots. So Rob, and I'll get to a little bit more on, on this theory from, from 
the, the architect himself, he shared something pr- pretty profound about this fairness discussion. I'll get to in a second. But my question for you, Stephen, is let's go back to the golden age of the 1920s, you know, prolifer- proliferation of golf in the United States. All these courses are getting uh, uh, built. Uh, Donald Ross is obviously a big name. And uh, there's there's so many other classic great architects which ones do you feel were more prone to building a fair golf course which was the pressure of stroke play which was the pressure of these very powerful uh uh, golf committees and club presidents that probably don't want to see blind shots don't want to i mean tom fazio can still build good golf courses where i'm going with this it's not that they're not but it is a very different kind of mindset and i i think this fairness discussion has it's a great place to bring this up. Were, were there people in the 1920s that were building good, strong, reputable golf courses, but they, they were definitely giving into this fairness, uh, fairness discussion? You know, the thing about it is, is that obviously the golden age of golf architecture, they designed things where the hazards were used more to dictate the strategy than to punish the wayward. And, you know, that is an extreme positive in terms of building of golf courses. So it wasn't a thing like where architecture became universally destroyed per se. It was just certain aspects of old style golf and mainly the blind shot. You know, very few architects after the age of the golden age built any holes that were blind. Uh, And that was true in the United States and true in England. And also, you know, when you were building, what, let's say if you're Tom Morris and you're going out and building a golf course or discovering a golf course, because he didn't really have any tools for building anything, he just had to discover them in the land. A lot of the green sites that he would select would be wildly undulating natural greens. So for instance, if you've ever had a chance to go and play Ashkernish in the Outer Hebrides, where, where I got to go play last summer, it's kind of a mind-blowing experience because these greens are so intensely undulating. They're just natural plateaus that he finds where the ground is swirling all over in very much the manner of Sweeten's Cove uh, greens. And um, so I do think greens became somewhat less wildly undulating than the natural ones that had maybe existed in the past as it became possible to use equipment to flatten you know, certain types of hills and things like this. And, um, you know, so I think, uh, golf course architecture got vastly improved. There's no, no denying that. And, you know, the idea that a hazard should punish the wayward is a fundamentally wrong idea and that they should dictate the strategy is a fundamentally correct idea. So I I don't want to seem to be in any way, uh, brutalizing the evolution of golf course architecture because in 90% of the ways it was, it was brilliant. Uh, but it did end up with, you know, very few blind shots particularly um, not having a blind approach to the green. I think there was a little more generosity in terms of if you couldn't see the fairway uh, as long as it was wide enough on the other side of whatever it was that you had to hit over, that there was, you know, there would be more acceptance of that than the idea that you couldn't see where you were hitting the ball onto the green and very few holes would get constructed either on either side of the pond where you couldn't see your target uh, most of the time. The other thing that I think we have to think about, too, is the evolution of agronomy. When you played golf in the 1860s or 70s, you played on a very rugged golf course that was, you know, mowed principally by sheep. And uh, so you didn't have the opportunity for pristine lies that came to exist 
you know, early on, even, you know, in, if you're looking in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, there's a great deal of emphasis putting on seed manufacturer and grass growing types, improving the types of grass so the putting surfaces would be better. Just for instance, you know, putting surfaces could still be quite rugged in the 1920s. Willie Park Jr. has a book called The Art of Putting that he published in 1921. He was probably the greatest putter of the early age of golf, he, he and young Tommy. And um, part of the book is about putting from cupped lies. So you can still have a situation on the green where your ball was in a little bit of a hole, uh, even though it was the, quote, green, which obviously you can imagine the aneurysm that a modern professional would have if he was on the green itself and his ball was uh, in some sort of depression uh, from which he could not roll, roll it perfectly. Um, so the agronomy and the, the incredible improvement in playing surfaces has also fed, because it created the possibility where you could hit it to a spot where your lie was perfect, then it created this idea, well, why can't I do that all the time? Why can't all my lies be perfect like that lie? And so the, the agronomy feeds into this evolution of this idea that I should get a clear lie when I hit a good shot, uh, which, of course, no Scotsman ever, ever believed uh, at the beginning. That's for sure. Kevin, I know, I know we're, we're past the hour, and I, I want to squeeze in this uh, Rob Collins uh, comment that literally kept me up at night. So if you gentlemen will, will bear with me. Um, Rob was on the show middle of, of this season. Uh, we were headed to Landman, his, him and Tad King's first 18-hole golf course, which is uh, a magnificent wonder of the world, if, if I will. I mean, it's just, just massive scale. And uh, he, Rob obviously subscribes to the ideal that golf is not fair and should not be fair. And uh, that's the beauty of it. And so uh, we were actually talking about the inverse of this and and critics of his golf course. And uh, he mentioned that, you know, he asked Kevin and I, have you guys seen No Country for Old Men? Which is a, a acclaimed movie, won a bunch of awards, but, you know, ha has a very strange ending. Spoiler alert. This might include spoiler alerts. Um, and the, the, the theory of it really comes down to chaos theory, that anything – can happen that that will happen or anything that, that can happen will happen. And, and that truly life is unfair. And, and Steven, you said at the top of the show, good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. And, and that is uh, the nature of it. Well, it also goes a little bit deeper. And if anyone that's listening has seen No Country for Old Men, I rewatched it twice after Rob was on the show talking about this because I am absolutely smitten with Rob Collin golf courses and I don't understand people that aren't, right? So, so he, he said, you'll understand people that aren't if you understand people that don't like this movie. And so like, all right, good. All right, I'm going to watch this movie. And so here's, here's our three uh, characters in, in No Country for Old Men. You have a hero who is Llewellyn, right? The, the, the local cowboy, the guy that was a little down on his luck, but, but you, you rooted for him. He was our hero. You had the sheriff played by Tommy Lee Jones, right? And the, the sheriff was the lawmaker and, and uh, uh, respected, um, but also kind of at the tail end of his career and starting to wind down and wanting to live a simpler life. And then you had the villain, Anton, who was the psychopathic killer and uh, really hard to, to empathize with because the guy was, uh, was so strange. But uh, you have the hero, the sheriff, and the villain. 
And in the world, if you think about the world in No Country for Old Men as, as synonymous with the golf course, you really have three choices as a golfer. You are the hero who fights the obstacles, who rolls up his sleeve, goes out and, and, and tries his very best to overcome every bunker, every, every water hazard, every challenge, every divot that's presented to you. You have the sheriff who actually fears it. He, he, he was very timid. He wanted out. He didn't want to fight this anymore. He didn't, he, he didn't understand the challenges anymore. And so he just feared it and, and, and kind of, kind of, it was this distant mystical thing. And then you have Anton who just becomes it and who just is the chaos. He presents the chaos and people play hit Rob's courses in one of those three ways where, where it's, you either fight it, you fear it, or, or you go chaos theory right back at it. And, and in all cases, I mean, there's, there's good and bad, of course, but I, I just had to share that with you guys. Cause I, I, we, we've gotten to know Rob through this show and, and, and other things, but from the architect standpoint to actually go to that level of, of what are the emotions that we're evoking from this experience and, and how synonymous that is with the truth of the matter, which life Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And that's the game of golf as well. And you can try your very best and do all the preparation in the world, but you might just get a bad break. And when you get that bad break, how do you react in that moment? I think that is just a, a, a beautiful thing about the game of golf. And so I had to share that. Knowing we were talking about fairness, I had to kind of share that with you guys uh, today that I had that recent epiphany. That's a great story. I love. I, I had the pleasure of meeting Rob and playing around with Rob also at Sweetens, and uh, you know he's just a fascinating man, a great guy. I just wanted to give you one other quote too. I happen to be reading Angus McVicker, the ancient Scottish writer, because uh, Jim Hartzell and I do our podcast, and he's the subject of our upcoming episode of the Duffer's Literary Companion. And he's and one of his essays that I'm going to talk about on that show is called Keeping the Faith, and it has a lot to do with the stymie rule. And one of his lines in there is, where would the excitement be in life or golf without the factor of luck? And, uh, you know, that sort of was the way that I walked away from Sweeten's Cove. You know, that was my first time ever seeing Sweeten's Cove when Jim graciously invited me to be his guest up there. And uh, when I played it, you know, obviously it's intensely baffling at first, especially around the greens. And, uh, some absolute catastrophes can unfold from what you would think of as only moderately poor shots that, uh, and then, you know, but it's such an adventure every single minute. It's such a great adventure every minute. And, uh, the key word in that Simpson quote was for me was these holes are too adventuresome. And, you know, I just reject that notion in its entirety on its face. There is no such thing as a hole that is too adventuresome. Isn't that the very isn't that the very essence of the joy is the adventure, you know, and, and what happens is when you get hung up on your score, the adventure becomes a negative. You know, I didn't score great at Sweeten's Cove. Uh, Jim and I did absolutely nothing in that tournament. Uh, and I didn't care one whit about it. Uh, I mean, obviously I, you can't be a newspaper man if you're not competitive. So I'm a competitive person. I like to win when I can, but it was just so much fun to play that golf course, especially anywhere near a putting surface. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just was just blown away by that golf course. And I, I wrote on Twitter uh, after I got home just that I thought it was the answer to any person who has this stupid idea that golf should be a fair game. Go play there. 
and show me how much fun do you have playing there and how many times do you make a shot that you think was pretty good uh, and um, turns out terrible. The other thing that was really illuminating for me was to stay the whole day and the whole night and watch the playoff for the championship for the final. And, you know, of course, I was having trouble sometimes getting my ball within the zip code of some of these holes because of the way the greens, you know, they had to finish in tough spots and the greens are very difficult to figure out. But when I, when I was watching the playoff, uh, we came to that first hole um, and uh, it's that par five hole that starts the, the golf course and it's got that wild green. The flag was way over there to the right in a very difficult to access spot. The four teams in the playoff, two of them approached it from the left. One of them approached it from the far right. One of them had flown over the green and was coming back at it. And every single one of those golfers, these were the premier golfers in the club, obviously, because they're in the finals, uh, hit the ball to the exact same spot on the green and watched it trickle back to within like a foot of the hole. And that was such a revelatory moment for me thinking, you know, if I could play here enough times, I could learn to understand the adventure in the way that these golfers have learned to understand the adventure and I could enjoy the fabulous joy that they must have experienced by watching that ball land on the one inch spot where it needs to land in order to produce the result that it produced and then watch it produce that result and it kind of was like to me the modern example of Freddie in the bunker filled with water uh, you know confronting what would seem to be an insurmountable obstacle and figuring out the way to overcome it through trial and error, through a hard experience. I can imagine that it was a great joy to them to have executed those shots under the pressure of a championship. And ultimately one of them proved to be uh, a winning shot in the end. Uh, but so I just thought that was a moment that taught me a lot about Sweeten's Cove, about the way that Rob Collins thinks about golf and the way that a person playing a course like that needs to think about the game in order to get the real joy out of it that's possible. Yeah, I've circled and boxed uh, a, a, a phrase here three different times during this talk, and sense of adventure is what it was. And Stephen, you just captured that. Like That's what golf should be. If we think all the way from architecture and the walk the, the architect takes you on, right? There should be a sense of adventure and then everything you experience with your shots. I, I, I always think of blind shots. I mean, is there anything more exciting? When you hit a good shot on a blind hole and you're just walking up there, each step, like, where's it going to be? Where's it going to be? Where's it going to be? Is it going to be close or am I going to get up there and am I going to be depressed because it took a slope and now it's, you know, off the green down in a bunker? Like, that's yeah, no, it, that's like, a, that's the whole joy of it. And Darwin talks about in that in the golf courses of the British Isles, you know, all the joy of climbing up the hill and seeing how close you've gotten. That's one of the great joys that's gone from the game pretty much now, unless you're, you know, when you go to play in Scotland, there's still tons and tons of blinds holes in Scotland. And so that's, uh, that, that adventure can still be had, but not much, not much elsewhere. And, uh, you know, that's, that I think, uh, it's just the essence of it, you know? That's that's the whole beauty of the game capsulized in one moment is that go out and enjoy a grand adventure and, you know, hopefully you can score well in the face of the challenges. But we all have to try to get ourselves into a space where, uh, to my mind, where you, you're, you are not your score. The experience is not your score. Uh, the experience is, you know, 
what 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 adventures did you face? What friends were you out with? How beautiful was the pace you were playing? Uh, that's the joy of the game. And I think we've gotten in a space in the modern age where we are our score. And I don't think of that as particularly healthy. And the game is our score. And I, I think those those things are not uh, not the right attitude for golf. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it is after all just a game. As my friend said to me one day when I got upset, we're not taking Iwo Jima, okay? <laughs> we're just playing golf. And uh, I, it is supposed to be fun in the end. And, you know, I had, I got beat up a lot at Sweetens Cove, but the thing I remember the most is there was an area of the golf course. I think it was on the, uh, it was right after that blind par three, uh, Kevin, that it's a short mm-hmm. par four with a wickedly difficult green. Number five, you know, everybody. Better, better players yeah. can drive the green. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jim referred to the area to the left of the green as Death Valley. Because if you hit your ball up there and your ball goes down to the left of the green, it's, it's, it would, I wouldn't say impossible, but incredibly difficult yeah, to get ideal. the ball to A, to stay on the putting surface so that your next shot is a putt or, or to, and, and, but beyond that, to get it to be a holeable putt is, 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 a, is, is really, really, really difficult. And I, uh, you know, I, I carry hickory clubs with me, even when I'm playing modern clubs, I carry this little uh, jigger that I like to you know, bump and run around as Kevin saw when I was playing. And mm-hmm. my greatest moment of joy that whole weekend was, uh, was alternate shot at that particular moment. Jim hit me into Death Valley and I chipped it to like six feet on that green from Death Valley with the little jigger and uh, gave us a chance to hold the putt. So, you know, that's the ultimate moment of joy when the near impossible obstacle is mounted. And uh, that's a shot I'll remember forever. Uh, having made and you know I'll you know the fact that I had to hit from divots every so often or whatever something that's easily forgotten but the shot remains Mm -hmm. and that's what you want from a golf course is to produce for you that kind of memory where you do something that would you would you would you would think of yourself as not capable of doing but somewhere within yourself you found that shot that minute and you produced it and that's that's the ultimate glory it's a beautiful place to to wrap up, Stephen. I, I I we could do a, a whole another session on on this topic alone, and we definitely brought on the right man to discuss it. Don't, I, don't you agree, Professor? Oh yeah, oh yeah. This was a this was a no brainer when uh, we were playing at Sweden. So I was like, all right, we gotta get you back in the pod. What's the topic? And I think he said fairness. I'm like, done. We don't need to talk anymore. Let's not even <laughs> brainstorm other ideas. That's where we, we're going. Th- there's, yeah, no, it's. There's, uh, it's Great to be on. You guys are great to have me on. I appreciate it. Every time I get to be on one of these things, somebody probably goes and buys a copy of a book. So I'm, gra- I'm grateful <laughs> for every opportunity I get to talk on one of these things because it is, it is not an easy thing to get golf books sold, especially golf books about history, because for whatever reason, people have zero, very little interest in the history of, their, of, of things and uh, especially the history of someone else's game. So it's been difficult to get Americans to buy books about the history of golf in Scotland. I, I, I tell people all the time, I think part of our mission uh, in the work that we do at New Club, Stephen, is to uh, create a happier, healthier uh, version of the game for people to enjoy. And we have a number of people that, that come back to, to golf through New Club and um, and they're, they're trying to get away from what we just talked about, right? Which is, I, you're, you're more than just the score. And, and I think architecture and the movement there 
And, and the, uh, that has helped a lot of people look at the game differently, I think, get another layer of appreciation from it outside of just score and performance. But I tell people all the time, an underlooked category of all the different areas of the game that you can peel the onion back and dive into is history. And for me personally, I'm not a historian. I probably was a B minus C plus student in history my entire life. But because I, I love this game the way I do, uh, history for me and your books in particular, Stephen, have connected me to a deeper tissue to know that I'm part of a golfing lineage that predates myself and my club and, and everything I know about the game. It really gives me a deeper appreciation for it and an enjoyment of it when I play. So thank you for what you do. I know there's not a lot of big bucks in the golf history book game, uh, but, but your uh, love of it, uh, it, it, it is appreciated. And, and, and we read, we do. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate that. I love doing it. You know, as I told you before we started, I don't, I never have done it for the money, uh, which is a good thing since there's none in there. Uh, but I have just done it because I, because I feel compelled to write. I've always written and because I love the game. And I, and I think one other thing I would say is that We've gotten into a terrible space in the modern world where the professional game is the game. And the professional game is not the game at all. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of the game. You know, the game is what you guys are doing at the new club, bringing people together to enjoy a beautiful golf course and to have camaraderie and friendship. Uh, professional golf was introduced as a sideshow, okay, as an entertainment, not as the game. And professional golfers have this horrible idea that they are the game, which is just an absurdity on its face. They are less than one-tenth of one percent of the game. The game is all of us out there playing eightsomes at Sweeten's Cove, getting beat up during a grand adventure. That's the game. You know, the game, we have to, as players, start to enjoy the game and to separate ourselves a little bit more from the professional game. The professional game is a very small group of people earning obscene amounts of money doing something that they have a great skill for, which is wonderful, good for them. But it's not the game. You know, the game is history and architecture and your swing and your friends and the beautiful fact that golf is played in a natural landscape and every course you go to is different than every other course and studying those nuances and getting joy out of them. That's the game. We need to get ourselves separated from this idea that the professional golf is the game. Nothing could be further from the truth. And if professional golf disappeared in its entirety, the game would still be there. And the game would still thrive and flourish because in the end, the game has really very little to do with professional golf. You know, and, uh, and it, you know, it existed hundreds of years before there was any such thing as professional golf. And the way professional golf is imploding now, it may be existing many years without professional golf. Who knows? But that's not the game. And I think we've made the horrible mistake. Too many of us have made the horrible mistake of assuming that that is the game. Amen. Amen. Yeah, here, Stephen, here. Thank, thank you so much for the time. It, this is truly a pleasure. Pleasure. And uh, we'll, we'll come up with the next topic to have you on again here soon. And we won't wait as long for the next one. Well, I'm always willing to be on, and I love the pod. I listen to it on the regular, and uh, especially as I agree with you that it's improved quite a bit with the addition of the professor, 
And, uh, you know, it's just like Joyce Weathered and Glenna Collette playing together. You bring the best out of each other. Uh, the way great golfers competing against one another bring the best out of one another. So that's a good thing. And uh, I'll keep listening. And you guys keep doing great stuff. Here, here. And thanks, everybody else, for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>